We are currently in a series on the Ten Commandments. Today looking at the Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery. We will be thinking about uh, sex and sexual immorality um, and things related. So I just wanted to give a heads up to parents that uh, that will be our subject for today as we look at God's word together. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18, the seventh commandment. Let's hear it together, God's word. And you shall not commit adultery. Well, this commandment is brief, but it makes many people bristle. It is, uh, shall we say, prickly for anyone who has embraced the creed of sexual autonomy. Creed that confesses that this is my body, since it's my own, my sexual desires, whatever they are, are healthy, praiseworthy, and normal. How dare anyone... How dare God tell me what to do and interfere with my right to do whatever I please? Well, many people still recognize that we have to have some limits put on sexual acts. So you don't hear very many people saying that it's right or good or permissible for an adult to have sexual contact with a child, for example. Uh, you don't hear people acknowledging that uh, the family, as we know it, needs to go the way of the dodo bird. And most people today still acknowledge that adultery is a bad deal and agree that society is better off with stable homes and families. As we think about this, it's, it's worth recognizing that God is not only concerned about protecting the family, his design for the family, he prohibits all kinds of sexual activity. God tells Israel who and who they cannot have sex with, not one's close relatives. This all comes from Leviticus 18. Not one's close relative. He forbids men to lie with men as with Women, Leviticus 18, verse 22. He forbids sexual contact with animals, verse 23. And if a man had uh, relations with a woman outside of the context of marriage, the law ensured that justice was done, Exodus 22. And so one of the things we need to recognize up front is the Lord does not consider consent the fundamental standard for social etiquette. He prohibits all kinds of consensual sex between adults. And Jesus takes it a step further. Jesus meddles even more, as we saw in our scripture reading a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, do not commit Adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus goes so far as to prohibit unlawful 
sexual desires and the habit of what we might call checking someone out that fuels those desires. And so if you thought there was any kind of loophole here, you know, I I used to work with a guy who would say to me all the time, you know, there's no harm in looking. Or if you thought pornography as an option, as a loophole, the privacy of your room, if you thought that was a legitimate loophole, you're dead wrong. In fact, when you think about it, watching pornography, you do exactly what Jesus forbids. Looking at a man or a woman with lustful intent in your heart. And so to sum it up, God fiercely demands that we channel our sexuality into a single narrow path. Lifelong commitment in marriage between a man and a woman or purity in a life of singleness. But have you ever stopped to ask why? Why? Why does God so jealously regulate human sexuality? Or are these just arbitrary rules meant to cramp our style and deny our desires? Or is there a reason for these laws? Why does God impose so many rules to regulate sex? The reason being because sex and marriage are profoundly theological issues. Theological realities. Now, I'll never forget the moment when the doors swung open at Calvin Presbyterian Church in North Huntington, Pennsylvania, and Kelsey came walking down the aisle. She was radiant, the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. I remember Pastor Aaron telling me before, remember to bend your knees, and I kind of laughed at him. Come on, I'll be fine. I almost passed out when I saw her. She was a revelation. And it's no exaggeration to speak that way because that's exactly what marriage is. A revelation. An unveiling of a reality. It's, It's no accident that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. The book of Revelation ends with the vision of a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And through this seemingly ordinary relationship we call marriage, God gives us a picture of his heart towards us in the gospel. And sex within marriage is created and designed as a sign of God's faithful and passionate love. For his bride. This is what marriage and sex are ultimately for. We talk about marriage being for companionship and procreation and purity. Yes, all of those things are true at the horizontal level, but ultimately, this is what marriage and sex are all about. They are for the Lord. Now, if you think that's a stretch, then just consider with me for a minute the Apostle Paul's words in. Ephesians chapter 5, when after talking about marriage, he says, this mystery is profound, referring to marriage. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Now, what Paul is saying there is not, well, look, by a little bit of human imagination, we can socially construct a certain vision for marriage and then make some connections between that vision of marriage and our relationship with the Lord. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying from the very beginning, by God's design, marriage was created to be a signpost of this reality of Christ's love for his bride, the church, and her responsive love to him. And so that means that the story of Adam and Eve is about much more than the first marriage. It is the story of the covenant between Christ and his bride. The Lord said it is not good for man to be alone because God had ordained for his son to take to himself a bride. And he left his father's side. And as we sang a few moments ago from heaven, he came and sought her and for her life he died. You see, the one flesh union of marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage are signposts of this greater reality. And once we understand marriage and sexuality is theological all the way down, then the do's and the do nots of the seventh commandment will fall into place. Sexual faithfulness in marriage and sexual purity outside of marriage are not arbitrary ideals. What is ultimate, the seventh commandment is teaching us, what is ultimate orders the lives of God's people. These things are symbols of God's love who who is himself faithful to his bride and and loves her, and she is faithful to him and loves him alone, exclusively. You see, sexual fidelity and joy in marriage dramatizes the good news of Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, who gives himself to and for his bride. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God's law fiercely guards the transcendent significance of marital fidelity and sex within marriage. Because at the very heart of this prohibition, it's so important we understand this, at the very heart of this prohibition is a positive vision. Vision that the Apostle John describes at the end of the book of Revelation when the motherly bridal city of the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and the dwelling place of God is with man, John says. When we will dwell with him, and he will dwell with us, and we will be his people, and God himself will be our God. Friends, it is this positive vision that must as it were, capture our hearts and sweep us off our feet if we want to understand and we want to have the power to keep the seventh commandment. We need to know what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. If we're going to say no to adultery in all of its many forms, and that's precisely what God gives us in the gospel, power to say no to counterfeits and yes 
to something so much better. You see, we really cannot understand or obey this commandment apart from the larger story of God's love. Make no mistake, it is not because God is squeamish about sex that he jealously preserves this expression of intimacy within marriage. It is because sex serves as a signpost pointing to something so much greater. So the negative prohibitions serve this positive purpose of preserving and protecting and promoting something that is truly and unspeakably beautiful and precious. You know, sometimes we are tempted to think, aren't we, that obeying Jesus will deprive us of some of life's greatest thrills and experiences. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to think that. You know, young people, and old people for that matter, have, have you ever been tempted to think that if I, if I am going to get really serious about my commitment to Jesus Christ, if I'm going to be really serious about following him and doing what he says, then that means I'm going to have to miss out on some of the greatest thrills and pleasures this world and life have to offer. That's certainly how the world would have us think. The world would have us think that being a Christian is a killjoy. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Just read through the Song of Songs. I mean, did you know that at the heart of Christian scripture, we have an entire book of love poetry celebrating the joys of sexual intimacy within marriage, while also taking us to the very heart of what it means to be loved by God. The Bible celebrates this intimacy within marriage in ways that are, quite frankly, way more enthusiastic than some of us might care to admit. I don't think we're anywhere near as enthusiastic about this human joy and the reality to which it points. And perhaps, I know this isn't the whole explanation, but perhaps this is one of the reasons we have so many problems in this area of human sexuality today. But make no mistakes about this. Our Lord is not a prude. <laughs> Jesus is and ever will be the life of the party, as the Gospel of John reminds us. You remember what Jesus' first miracle was? Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine at a wedding banquet. And we're not talking about a little bit of wine just to top off everyone's glass. We are talking about an abundance of wine. And we are not talking about garbage wine that would be saved to the very end when nobody really cares anymore about what it tastes like. We're talking about the very best wine anyone could imagine. And John tells us this was Jesus' first sign. And how fitting that is, because the Gospel of John depicts Jesus as the bridegroom who has come to seek for himself his bride. And so the very first thing he does takes place in the context of a wedding banquet because it's a sign pointing us to a wedding feast, a sign of things to come. And so with that vision of the why behind the what in view, 
I'd like to look at the seventh commandment. I know that was the longest introduction you've probably ever experienced, but it is what it is. Um, With that in mind, I'd like us to consider the seventh commandment in two parts. Very simply, first, what is forbidden? Second, what is required? There's so much that could be said within the broad domain of this commandment. Frankly, I felt a little bit defeated in preparation. What do we... What do we cover? What, what do we, we, we say here to cover the implications of this commandment? As we saw with the shorter catechism, the seventh commandment forbids all impure thoughts, words, and actions. And that covers a lot of territory, doesn't it? And so to try to get started somewhere, let's just come back to Jesus' exposition of the seventh commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to do that because Jesus gets to the heart of the matter in Matthew chapter verses 27 and 28 you've heard that it was said do not commit adultery but I tell you anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart well here Jesus forces us to come to terms with the fact that you do not need to commit the physical act of adultery in order to be an adulterer at its core adultery is in an affair of the heart every lustful look is an act of treason against the true lover of our souls whether we are married or not you remember what David said after his lustful look that led to adultery with Bathsheba once David was brought to repentance he said against you referring to the Lord against you you only have I sinned have you ever asked yourself how how could David ask that question or, or say those words, against you and you only have I sinned. What, what, about, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about David's family? What about the nation of Israel? I mean, we're talking about somebody who committed adultery with, with a woman and then conspired to have her husband put to death on the battlefield. Don't don't any of them matter? Of course they do. Yes, they matter. But in a moment of clarity and conviction under the Holy Spirit, you see, David came to understand that it is ultimately before God that we stand or fall. Against you and you only have I sinned. He saw in a moment of clarity, and nobody else really knows your heart. Your spouse doesn't know your, your heart. You don't even know your heart as well as you think you do. But God does. God sees. He he knows it all. Every time you have committed adultery, whether in your inward thoughts or desires or with your body, God knows and sees. There is nothing hidden from his sight. All things are before his gaze. Before the gaze of the one with whom we have to do. God is the one with whom we have to do. So that means there's, there's no games, no hiding, no deception, right? no covering over the truth. He knows. And so listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just to think about these words together for a few minutes. Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. 
Okay, you hear that and you think, I, I get that. My body isn't for illicit sex. But what is it for? Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. I wonder if that's how you think about your body. That your body, not, not just your soul, but your body is for the Lord. You know, we've, I think, become so deeply desensitized to this deeply spiritual and yet physical reality because we've forgotten the grand story of God's love and have allowed that story to be replaced by a false narrative that encourages us to misuse our bodies and abuse other people's bodies for fleeting moments of gratification and thrill. We've become so desensitized because we've replaced the story of the gospel with the false narrative of the world that it's my body, my choice. We have allowed the the song of songs to be drowned out by the songs of the world, the flesh and the devil who would have us to believe that we are free to just do whatever we want. And so in a thousand different ways, our culture trivializes sex. But the Bible teaches us to see it as a transcendent signpost pointing to something far greater. Elsewhere, scripture says, do not be deceived. Heard these words already. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, and so on, None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, for the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Elsewhere, Paul says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now consider just for a moment what a chilling thing it is to disregard God. Can you imagine disregarding the edge of the Grand Canyon? You know, tiptoeing along the edge, playing around there, thinking you'll be fine. Well, so much more, so much more power and goodness and beauty is disregarded whenever we disregard God and give in to sexual immorality. This warning, do not be deceived, I think is so crucial for us to hear today in our world where we are continually being bombarded by all kinds of sexually suggestive material. It really is alarming. You know, when you, when you just look at, just think about this from a physiological perspective for a moment. Look at the science of what pornography does to the brain and the body. Dr. William Struthers, a neuroscientist and professor of psychology at Wheaton College, uh, summarizes this in a book called Wired for Intimacy. He says that like a path that create, uh, that's created in the woods by each successive hiker, viewing sexual images creates uh, pathways in the brain. It makes a a real physical difference in our brains. Over time, he says, these neural pathways become deeper and wider as they are repeatedly 
uh, repeatedly traveled through more and more exposure to pornography. And then this is the, the thing we need to hear. And they become the automatic neural pathway through which interactions with others are routed. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is there so much sexual abuse in our culture today? I mean, how, how do people go from a, from a fantasy to a gaze to an act to physical acts of violence? And how, how does that happen and why is it so common? The common statistic that's cited today is that something like one in four women and one in six men will experience some form of sexual Uh, abuse in their lifetime why is it so common this is not the sole answer but it's surely part of the answer that unchecked sin will always give birth to greater sin the scriptures say do not be deceived the lord is an avenger and brothers and sisters for those of you who have experienced mistreatment in this area this is actually good news for you you know if you've if you've been sexually abused you you don't have to be the avenger the shame the embarrassment the anger scripture scripture says the lord himself is an avenger he will take care of these things he will ensure that justice is Rendered, He will make everything right. And those who go on practicing sexual immorality as a way of life without repentance will go to hell. That is what scripture says. It's what the Bible teaches. Those who go on and on practicing sexual immorality, living for their own selfish gratification without repentance will go to hell. You see, friends, sex is like fire. It's a wonderful thing when it's kept in the fireplace. But if you play around with it, it will burn your house to the ground. And that takes us to the second half of this commandment. Not only what is forbidden, but what the seventh commandment positively requires. And again, we can only scratch the surface. And I want to try to be as practical as I can as we think about the the Bible's summary teaching on this. But first, it's important to remember that we can have have all of the how-to advice in the world, and without the want-to, we are not going to get anywhere. In other words, we can have all the techniques, all the computer software systems, all of these different strategies, and they will not amount to anything without the want-to. And so the real question is, what do you want? What do you want? That's the question that Jesus asked his disciples. It's a question of desire. You see, in the final analysis, what is required by the seventh commandment is what is required by the rest of the commandments. It's what is required by the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Deuteronomy repeatedly calls us to hold fast to the Lord. And that language of holding fast is the language 
of cleaving in marriage. It's what men and women do when they get married. They hold fast to one another. It means to be given over wholly and completely to God. And when we're given over completely to God, when it's him we desire, we will give ourselves over exclusively to our wife or our husband or remain pure if we are single. You see, the commandment requires us to live as though our bodies really are for the Lord. But, but I think another important question we have to ask ourselves is, where does the want to come from? Because let's face it, left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, this is not what we want, is it? We don't have it in ourselves. We don't want to do this on our own. We don't want to give ourselves to God in this way. And we can't on our own. Every single one of us has failed in the area of human sexuality. So where does this desire come from to give ourselves over completely and exclusively to the Lord? Well, it comes from seeing how completely and unreservedly the Lord has already given himself to and for his people in the gospel. You've got to see it. You've got to understand it. You've got to come to terms with it. It really is a wonder. Think again about the Song of Songs. If all the Bible is about Jesus, which it is, then what do we do? What do we make of the Song of Songs? What does this Bible teach us about uh, what, what does the Song of Songs teach us about Jesus, and what does it teach us about keeping the seventh commandment? It tells us the story of God's love for his people. And, and not just that, it is an exuberant celebration of the love of God for his people. The Song of Songs is not, is not merely the relaying of more information. It's not merely a, a series of doctrinal statements. It is a celebration of God's love. And it tells us that God is not ashamed to proclaim and declare his love for his people in some of the most intimate analogies possible. And we need to hear it if we're going to overcome the deceitful song of the world, the flesh, and the devil, because our world is awash with lesser love songs. And so we need to hear the strong music of the gospel to drown out the melodies that would lead us astray. We need the Song of Songs to help us keep the feast. That's, what, that's exactly what the Song of Songs claims to be, brothers and sisters. The greatest song of all. It's superlative. Song of Songs, like Lord of Lords and Holy of Holies. It's saying, this is the ultimate. This is the best. This is the most sublime song of all. Now, how can we speak of it that way? You know, throughout history, the Song of Songs has typically been understood in, this is a generalization, but primarily in one of two ways. Sometimes it's been read in a a way that is very earthy, right? In, In other words, the Song of Songs is a love song celebrating human marriage, and that's it. That's all it's about. Other people have tended to, to, to read it 
emphasizing a spiritual meaning, saying, no, this is, this is a love song about Christ's love for his bride, the church. And you've heard me say this before, that I don't think that we should set at odds with one another things that God has joined together. I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. We have something to learn about earthly love in the Song of Songs, human love, but we also have something to learn about God's love for us. And thus, while there should be no question that the song celebrates marriage, we can't leave it at that. Because the whole Bible, including the Song of Songs, is ultimately about a true and better bridegroom. So whether you're married or single, young or old, this book calls to us because the God who designed us The God who made our drives, the God who made our appetites, he knows what we need, which is nothing less than himself. And I know it's hard to believe sometimes. We we really struggle to come to terms with this sometimes, brothers and sisters, but God really loves you. He loves you. He, He takes delight in you. He He sings and rejoices over you. He desires to be near you as a bridegroom with his bride. You see, this is where the power that we need to say no to adultery in all of its forms comes from. We need need strategies and techniques and practical helps. But this is where the power originates. This is where the strength comes from to resist those seemingly irresistible desires. This is where the want to comes from by abiding in his love. What does Jesus say? Abide in my love. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And look, for those, those of us who have or are struggling here, who have failed again and again, who feel like they, they're never making any progress in this area of the, their lives, For those of us who've come off the battlefield afresh and perhaps we've lost the fight, this is where you can find grace and hope and strength abiding in Christ's love. As we abide in him, he tells us, don't don't give up. I can create a new heart in you. I can put a right spirit within you. I will not cast you away. I will restore to you the joy of your salvation and uphold you with a willing spirit. But what about the how-to? This is an important question. Many of us listening this morning maybe have, have taken God's strong warnings about sexual immorality to heart and I hope we have a fresh sense of God's love for his people in the gospel. But we just we just don't know exactly how to go about saying no to, to adultery in all of its forms and yes to fidelity, to sexual fidelity in every area of life. So let me just offer a few practical pieces of counsel. The first thing I'd say practically is do not try to go it alone. But the challenge is that's exactly what you want to do, isn't it? You know, maybe you're embarrassed, maybe you're ashamed, especially if you find yourself in an adulterous relationship or 
experiencing a powerful sexual temptation. You don't want to talk to anyone. You don't, you don't want to bring it into the light. But this, it's exactly what we need to do, brothers and sisters. After humbly going to God first and pleading for his mercy, you have to seek out mature believers who will come alongside of you and help you. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desires. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Do not, do not deceive yourself by telling yourself, I can take care of this. I can handle this on my own. I can manage this. I can domesticate this sin. It will destroy you. We all need help. The second thing I'd point out is that sanctification, growing in holiness, becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ, always involves this twofold dynamic of putting off and putting on. Putting some things off and putting some things on, as Paul teaches in Colossians chapter 3. So first, there are certain things that you have to cut out of your life if you are going to keep this command. That, that, that's, it, it, it's, it's simple, it's hard, but it's very straightforward. There are, there are things that have got to go. And this may require, as Jesus teaches so clearly in, in Matthew chapter 5, this may require taking drastic measures. Did you hear what Jesus said during our scripture reading? Let me remind you, Matthew 5 verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, applying this admittedly hyperbolic language is going to look different for different people. Okay, But do not miss the fundamental point. You may need to take drastic measures. For some of us, that might mean getting serious by getting off of a social media account. It might mean ending a relationship, no matter how painful that might be. I know of people who have left a job because of this issue. For others, it may mean ditching your smartphone. Can you fathom it? (laughs) And if you can't, that might just highlight how deep the problem really goes. Maybe you need to get rid of your internet connection. That, That might sound difficult, but brother or sister, it is better than going to hell. Adultery does not take place all of the sudden. It often happens over time through gradual series of compromises. So we should ask ourselves, we should should take inventory and ask, what needs to go? What do I need to cut out of my life for the sake of fidelity to Jesus? Remember, David, David committed adultery, the text tells us, in the springtime when kings go off to war. What is that saying? It's saying, well, if he, had, if he had been doing his job, 
If he had been doing what he was supposed to be doing as the king and leader of the nation of Israel, he would have never been in that situation to begin with. I think this is part of our problem that we need to recognize. A basic failure to keep up with and do the things that we should be doing. It creates a space for temptation in our lives. Right? When we could be engaged in acts of service, when we could be devoted to labors of love, instead we may be sitting alone for hours and hours, scrolling on our phones from one image to the next. When we should be in bed fast asleep so that we're well rested for the next day to serve God and serve others, we stay up late at night staring at images on a screen we have no business looking at. When we could be spending time with loved ones, serving people around us, we watch trash movies, and then we wonder why our minds are filled with impure thoughts. It's because we've already failed by neglecting the good things God calls us to do, brothers and sisters. We've got to be ruthless in cutting out those occasions for temptation and maintaining the things God calls us to do. Take inventory. Where are you not going off to war like you should in the springtime? Where are you walking around on the rooftop where you have no business being? But that's not all. It's not enough to simply cut those things out. Cutting stuff out is first step, but we could say you also have to crowd it out. Not only putting off, but putting on. Something else has to fill the vacuum. Remember what Jesus said, you drive out a demon, well, seven more are going to come back and it's going to be even worse. And so this begins by crowding out the things that do not belong. Begins with internalizing God's word and learning to speak God's truth to ourselves on a daily basis. Listen to these words from Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wonder from your commandments. I have stored your word up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now notice that hiding God's word in our hearts involves more than simply reading it. It involves internalizing it, digesting it until it becomes a part of us. The more we read God's word, the more that it becomes a part of our lives, the more we are exposed to those other means by which adultery and other sins are crowded out of our lives. Things like the worship of God, prayer, the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints, Christian service. When we fill our lives with good things, there's less and less room for the things that do not belong. Now, in closing, so much more we could say about the seventh commandment, but I need to bring things to a close. So let me just offer two quick words. First, a word to people who are brokenhearted, heavy-hearted, over their own sexual sin and failures. Some of, some of us here this morning might be well aware of failures in the past or failures in the present. And, and you might think, I, I hate what I've done. You might even think, I hate myself 
for what I've done. God speaks a word of comfort to the contrite, to the ashamed, to those who come to Jesus. Remember the words of the psalmist, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. As Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He removes your shame. He covers over your sin. He clothes you in his own righteousness. And then a word for all of us. It's a promise. A promise that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Back to the question, what do you want? Do you want to look at images that can give you some feelings of pleasure for a few passing moments? Or do you want the vision of God that will be the eternal, unending, ever-increasing source of joy and satisfaction of those who set their heart upon him? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, when sexual temptation arises, remember that saying no is not a rejection of joy. Saying no is not a killjoy. It is a commitment to the vision of God who satisfies our souls and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Hold fast To him, cling to Jesus, the true lover of your soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you for the depth of your law and how broad it is and how it extends to every aspect of our lives. And though it's often sore, we thank you for the way that It is a kind of mirror for us to look into and to see our sinfulness, to see how we fall so far short of your will for us. And we thank you that it is a handmaid, that it leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who who kept the law perfectly. And we thank you that in the hands of the Holy Spirit, it is used in our lives to conform us to the image and likeness of Jesus. Would you please minister to each one of us, Holy Spirit, according to our individual lives and needs and temptations, and cause your word to bear good fruit in our lives that would bring glory and praise to our Father who is in heaven. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.